Let's take our Bibles again and turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis 41. I am going to read the whole chapter. It's 57 verses. Don't start your sermon clock watch until after I read the text. Otherwise, <laughs> that could take some, some time. But I, I think it's important that we read it. Pay attention to repeated words and phrases and the characters. And I think the Lord will bless the, even the reading of his word. Genesis 41. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in a marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning, his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night. He and I, each of us, dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now the Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related to them, we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. Just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. So he restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. And they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon, and when he had shaven himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can't interpret it. Then Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up 
the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it cannot be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears full of full and good came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years, and the dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind would be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it would be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now, let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt and the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there was no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people should do homage. Only in the throne... I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, that is, before Joseph, Bow the knee! And he set him over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zephanath Paneah and gave him Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus 
Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Verse 50. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. And the second, Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was a famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, but he, be, he says to you, You shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. Lord, we thank you for this text, and now we pray as we continue to fix our eyes upon you and seek to hear what you would say to us. Lord, we do ask that you would give me grace to teach accurately and clearly and give us all your grace to be able to do that which your word teaches us, Lord. We pray that you would convict us, clean our hearts, and equip us for your sake, Lord. We give thanks to you, Lord. Amen. You will own nothing and be happy. You own nothing and be happy. Who was it that said this? That's Klaus Schwab in his book, The Great Reset. You shall own nothing. And be happy. Another quote that I heard this week said, maybe you heard it, we are now part of the new world order. The leader of the free world said this week, we are now part of the new world order. The leader of the free world said this this week. And that this is what he said, that there would be a famine, a, a severe famine, and it's real, there will be a food famine in all the world, especially the U.S. Did you hear this this week? This is what the leader of the free world said this week. So one man says, that wrote the book, The Great Reset, which I read, that you will own nothing, but you will be happy. Another leader said that there is a great famine coming because of all that's happening in Europe and Ukraine and the sanctions, there will be a great famine in the U.S. In all the world, but it's real. So my question, as we look at this text and hear what leaders say in our world today, who determines prosperity and poverty? Ultimately and foundationally, it's God. Certainly there are things that people do and nations do and, and things that, that we do that can lead to poverty or 
prosperity, but foundationally and ultimately, no matter who it is here, it's Pharaoh and Egypt and, and even all the earth, the one that controls abundance or lack thereof is God, is the Lord. And so in a very true, real sense, this inspired ancient text talks about famine and it talks about abundance. But even today, people are talking about the same very thing. The world changes somewhat. But the, 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 the substance of it, the, the, the issues of it, continue. There, there's nothing new under the sun. We'll see if there is a famine or not. There could be. But ultimately, the one that controls poverty and prosperity is the Lord. So then, as we look at this text, main, main point, main idea, God is in control of success or lack thereof. So focus and keep going forward. As we've said, things could get worse, things could get a lot worse. One day, it's going to be eternally better. It's going to be a world of grace and love and perfection and, and glory and joy forever and ever and ever. But things could get bad. So then what do we do? We get focused and we keep going forward because we know God controls the success or the lack of success. God controls that. God's in control of abundance or lack of abundance. So we focus on Christ, we focus on God, we focus on truth, and we keep going forward, doing what the Bible tells us to do. And this passage here will unfold at least four details of this getting focused and keep going forward because God is the one that controls how much we have or don't have. Ultimately, again, foundationally, and ultimately, that's up to God. And so we keep focused, we keep going forward. What does that look like? The first detail is this. Give God the glory for his control of prosperity or poverty. God is in control of who has abundance or who just has a bag of peanuts. God's in control of that. Ultimately. That's up to the Lord. And so we give him the glory for that. Whether it's on the, the macro level and it's nations, our different hemispheres of the world, or whether it's different states, or whether it's different cities, or whether it's individuals, the Lord is in control of that, either nationally or personally. Ultimately, foundationally, God determines. Even in the text you've read where it says in verse 32, the matter is determined by God of who has what and how much that person, person's nation, cities have. Ultimately, that's up to the Lord. And so then we give him the glory. We give him the honor. Now, remember again, and I'm going to keep saying this to be sure that we understand, and if we understand better, then we may be able to apply this word better, is this book of Genesis was first written to and given to the people of Israel. And Israel is made up out of what? 
former slaves, a type of refugee of families. Families with kids, marriages, all kinds of single people. They don't really have a home. They're they're just wandering around, living almost as nomads. They're having a difficult time. I'm sure there's all kinds of marriage problems, single problems, job problems. What kind of jobs did did they have? There's all kinds of issues. And God has promised them a place and a home, and they have to go there and believe in faith. And they end up, most of them, not being able to go into the promised land because there is not faith. Only Joshua and Caleb, out of all of them, had the faith to go on. And so God here is giving them this message that he's in control of abundance. He's in control of lack of abundance. So then what should we do? We focus on God. We focus on the Lord. We focus on Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we trust him and keep pressing forward by faith. And him. We trust him. Not our bank account. Now, to expand on this, give God the glory. Because he's the one that controls whether you have surplus or, or scarcity, I want to get into it five details, and we're, we're going to look at these quick, but five details to help us to understand a little bit better this passage and this idea of give God his proper place, give him the glory that he's the one ultimately, foundationally, that controls who has what and how much, whether it's a lot or little, God controls that. So underneath, give God the glory. First, I want you to understand, because you really can't see it in the English text, is that there is a play on words. That It's actually kind of, I think it's kind of funny, maybe a little bit sarcastic. So if you see in verse 1 of chapter 41, it says Pharaoh, and in Hebrew, basically, you pronounce Pharaoh, Pharaoh, basically, okay? Well, the word cow is Pharaoh. Pharaoh and the word cow is Pharaoh. They're basically, Hebrew has three consonants for the, the term. Every Hebrew word is built off of a three-consonant root. And it's basically, basically the same tri-consonantal root for Pharaoh just one other little letter is added. You have Pharaoh, which is basically cow, and Pharaoh, which is the, the, the king of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh wouldn't be reading this text. Right? It would be the Hebrews that left Egypt would be reading this text. And so when they would heard this being read to them, there's other, they would hear the similarity in the words and throughout all of scripture, even even earlier in the book of Genesis, even actually Paul does it and many different epistles as we'll use a play on words to help either people remember or, or to get across a point. And here there seems to be this subtle point of God has established Pharaoh as king and Pharaoh has his authority, but he is not the foundational our ultimate authority, that is God. 
there are many animals God could have chosen. You know, he, he could have chosen camel. And so you have an, at least biblical linguistics, when you have a certain choice of words where different words could be used, if you have a certain word that develops into a wordplay, it has a significance. And so there seems to be some significance here with this type of a pun of you have Pharaoh, the, the great Pharaoh, the king basically of the known world, and then you have cows. Uh, animals that do hard work and that are subservient. And it's not that Pharaoh is subservient to men. Pharaoh is subservient to who? To God. And it does seem to be part of this text, again, because many, there are other animals and other word choices, but he chooses, you have Pharaoh and then you have Pharaoh. And it's repeated over and over and over and over and over again. So there's a little bit of of humor. Second, when you look at the, the Bible says dreams here, and it's true, but today we might say not just a dream, but what kind of a dream? These would be nightmares. You can read the text. First time he wakes up, and it's like, no, no big deal. You know, he rolls back over, he goes to sleep. And then he dreams a, a similar dream, and then he wakes up, and then he's scared. How many of you have had a dream, and you wake up, and, and afterwards, you're, you're sweating? Have you had that kind of dream before? Anybody? Yes, I have. I have last year. Sometimes if I have a nightmare, I wake up, and I'm just, I'm just sweating. Any of the kids have? I know some kids have. This is what Pharaoh is having. And when you think of these pictures, if you look at the text, the Hebrew is saying, and sometimes in the past I've missed this, I've missed this when I've read it, it's that you have the ugly, weak, frail, sick-looking cows. What do they do to the healthy, strong-looking cows? They eat them. They eat them. They gobble them up. So if you've read... The wing, wing feather saga books, one of the creatures in there are the what kind of cows? The toothy cows? Have, have you ever read those series? Oh, the toothy cows? The cows that have these teeth that come sticking out like that? Has anybody read those? Yes, I, I know some have. Yes, very good books. So sometimes you think that the worst creature is a troll or an orc. It could be a toothy cow. You have to read these books. I mean, this is actually a horror story. Picture a cow eating another cow. Or picture a, like a, a piece of wheat maybe, and then it's, you know, it, maybe it's like a, a beginning to fall over and it's just looking like frail and sick and I would never want to pick that and use that. It's just, you know, maybe it's diseased. And then there's this great looking, beautiful, abundant, you know, prosperous, healthy looking, vibrant, robust grain. But the ugly-looking, frail, gaunt grain all of a sudden has a mouth, and the mouth opens up, and it has teeth. That's the, in the text. That's what the text is communicating. It's not communicating. There was this lovely field, and there was this cow, and then over here there were some cows, and it looked sick, and over here there was some grain that looked robust and healthy, and then these other grain didn't look so good. And then Pharaoh was scared and troubled. That's not the idea. It, it, 
The idea is it was a nightmare. He had sick-looking cows eating healthy cows. Gobble, 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 gobble. And then you had, let's say, grain, wheat. And then you had other grain swallowing, eating the other grain. At least we could say this. It was a disturbing dream. And the text says that, right? It says that he was disturbed. He was disturbed. So much so that what does he do? He has to call his interpreters, his magicians to come and try to explain it to him. So when we think about this, don't think about it as this peaceful dream. It's a violent dream. So much so that he's disturbed by it. And remember, his culture, they would put a lot into dreams. You can look again at verse at verse 8. In the morning, his spirit was troubled. It's the idea of being disturbed and tossed and upset. We would say maybe today he was freaking out. This is crazy. Have you, have you ever had a dream that freaked you out? That just stayed with you? That's what's happening with Pharaoh. I had a dream. I don't want to scare any of the young kids, but I had a dream for months and months and months when I was about, I think, seven or eight years old that slowly my door would open up and this head would come out and it was yellow and it had a green cucumber nose. It scared me so bad. Now, it was my second oldest brother that said the boogeyman lived in a closet. So that probably is what gave me the nightmare. But what this text is trying to communicate is that kind of fright to where Pharaoh wasn't just like, oh, okay, cows and wheat or grain. Okay. No, it it was a nightmare. He was scared. What's going on? This is crazy. And all of this is giving God the glory. Pharaoh is subservient to God. He's not God. In fact, when he's given this revelation, he's what? Disturbed. He's like a kid. He's like a kid. Third, and we're talking about underneath giving God the glory. The world and religion is impotent. The Egyptian religion, the, the kingdom, the number one kingdom of the known world at that time, its, its highest spiritual advisors were powerless to help Pharaoh. You can see this in verse 8, but there was no one who could interpret to Pharaoh. And even in verse 24, then I told it to the magicians, and there was no one who could explain it to me. So the magicians that are also our priests, they are the king's personal counselor and advisors. They cannot explain or interpret the dream at all. And apparently, they didn't even want to make something up. <laughs> what are they going to say? They don't take a risk. Maybe they too are scared by the dream. I'm reminded of Daniel, who, if I remember right, he didn't even need to be told the dream. He, he already knew the dream. Here, Joseph is told the dream. But the point here that the text is making is the, the world, its, its highest spiritual religious advisors of the known world at that time had nothing to say. They didn't have the insight. They, they didn't have the knowledge. 
they didn't know. We know that God has given us his word. God has given us Christ in Christ to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The religions of the world don't have the answers. Only Christ does. Only God does. At least these priests, these religious priests, don't tell a lie. They, they don't make something up. They just basically are saying, I got nothing. <laughs> I have no idea. Because they're impotent. Only God is the great interpreter. And only God has the answers in Christ. Number four, underneath giving God the glory. Only God has the answers. We should be scared if we don't know God. If we see or know revelation without knowing Christ, without knowing the interpretation, it would scare us. Number four, underneath giving God the glory. In a sense, when you look at these dreams and what happens with Joseph, Pharaoh, and the land of Egypt, it's almost like a sermon. It's basically a sermon to the people of Israel. Yes, to Pharaoh, and then to Pharaoh, to the people of Israel as they receive this book. And here's what I mean. First, you have this humility for Joseph, a type of preacher, because he says in verse 16 to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. There's humility. Joseph is saying, I don't have what it takes. I can give you the interpretation, but it will be God through me. I'm just a mouthpiece. I'm just a messenger. It's God. It's the Lord. It's Yahweh. Joseph is being God-centered. And then what does he do? When you look at this text and read the text, starting at verse 25, all the way down to verse 32, 31, he explains or interprets the dream. And then after that, he applies it. You can look at verse 33. Now let Pharaoh look. Verse 34, let Pharaoh take action. Verse 35, then let them gather all the food. Verse 36, let the food become as a reserve. So what I am saying is what you have in this text is a sermon to Pharaoh and then to Israel that God's in charge. And here is how he's going to show that he's in charge. That's the explanation. Now, based upon this explanation, Pharaoh, you better make some application. And it should be quick. That's what he says. For God will quickly bring it about. Verse 32. God is sovereign. Here's what's going to happen. Based upon that, you'd better do something and make it quick. That's basically a sermon. And Joseph is not being prideful and arrogant and flashy. He's saying, here's what God is saying to you. And I would suggest you do this based upon that. And he's pointing to the Lord. Take action, because God is saying this is what he's going to do. He's going to do it quickly, so you'd better make some decisions pretty quick. And then finally, uh, number five, underneath this idea, this first detail, giving God the glory. This is 
really all God-centered. Even here, Joseph, he's this messenger, a type of preacher, the ambassador from God, and he's being humble. He's pointing to God, and then based upon what God said, do this, Pharaoh. And then to enlarge upon all what we've said, there, the, the main emphasis, as I said at the beginning, is on the Lord's control of prosperity and poverty, of surplus or scarcity. God is in control of that. And that would imply wind, rain, clouds, right? Animals, weather, earth rotation, sun, all of that. God is in control over everything. And you can see this certainly in verse 32 when he says, now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means the matter is determined by God. That's very clear. <laughs> the matter is determined by God. God's gonna, God has already determined, and the Hebrew is purposed or established or he's fixed it. God has already made a decree in his mind, and it's established that this is exactly what's going to happen. There's not some kind of weather pantheon of gods. There's Yahweh, there's God, there's the Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God. They decide, God decides. What's going to happen? And the text is very clear. The matter is determined by God. God will quickly bring it about. But not only that, if you just look at the text several times, like in verse 25, God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. When it says he is about to do, the he is referring to God. Verse 28, it is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The leading noun there is God. So this whole text is about this is what the triune God is going to do. This is what Yahweh is going to do. God's going to do this. God's in charge. For example, uh, you don't have to go very far. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. We see this testimony throughout all of Scripture. For example, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord. That's why I've been saying Yahweh. I am the Lord, all capitals, who does all these. It's that covenant-keeping triune God that determines who and where and the amount of abundance or lack of abundance a person, a family, a nation, or a city has. That's up to the Lord. And so we give Him the glory. We give Him the honor. We worship Him because He's the one that controls our destiny and nobody else. Nobody else. God is Lord and no one else. Jesus is Lord of the universe and no one else comes even remotely close. That's the first detail. Now, a second detail. Plan, prepare, and do. Plan, prepare, and do. If you look back at verses 33 to 36... 
which I pointed out just a few minutes ago, you can see that there was doing. And some versions will say, now Pharaoh should do this. You can see verse 34, let Pharaoh take action. Verse 35, then let them gather together, uh, store up. There is this action and planning that is happening here. Uh, See to it. This is what you should do, Pharaoh. Based on the fact that God controls everything, what I want you to do is to pray, and that's it. Is that what Joseph says? We should always pray, all the time. Pray all the time. But a proper response to the fact that God is absolutely sovereign over all things, it does begin with prayer, but it moves based upon prayer with taking concrete action. And here is you see Pharaoh taking action. Based upon Joseph giving this godly, wise advice. So generally, we can say this. Based upon this text. Because God is sovereign, get busy. Because God is sovereign, get to work. Believing that God is in control of all things should lead to us taking concrete action. If we really believe that God's absolutely sovereign over all things, a biblical perspective is not to draw back and not do anything. It's God is sovereign over all things. So based upon that, I'm going to look to him and I'm going to plan, prepare, and organize and work really hard. Think about Jesus Christ. Did the Lord Jesus Christ know the plan when he came to earth? Did he know the plan? Did he know that he was to go to the cross, die on the cross, and rise again? He did. Did he pray? Yes, he prayed. Did, but did he do more than pray? He did a lot more. <laughs> and he was God, and he knew the plan perfectly. He knew exactly what was going to happen before the beginning of time. But yet, he took concrete action. He even organized. You, you, you can read the Gospels and see that. So if we know that God is sovereign, but we're not taking action, initiating responsible action, then either we're disobedient or we have a wrong view of God. Now, specifically then, that's generally... Specifically, we're saying plan, do, specifically, how would this work out? And and though this text is not, its nature, its genre is descriptive, the intention of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, is prescriptive. The intention of even a narrative text, when we understand it correctly, is to do. And I think here, clearly what we see is that Joseph is saying, Pharaoh, This is what God's saying. He's going to bring really seven years of blessing like you've never, ever seen before. Then right after the seven years, he's going to bring seven years of famine like you've never seen before. And Egypt, but also over a lot of the world. So based upon that, you should really prepare. And then what what do they do? They, They get organized. You can see verse 38... 
And then he talks to, to Joseph, and he puts Joseph in charge. And then Joseph ends up getting organized and plans and prepares and takes action. You can see this from verse really from verse 33 all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 57. There is planning, there is preparing, then there is organizing, there is delegating, and there's taking action. In this text. So this text is not saying that every dream you have is a message from God. Okay, we have the written word of God. Nor is this text saying necessarily you must be a prepper. But this text is saying if you're wise, knowing that God is sovereign over all things, you're going to plan, prepare, get ready, and take action. In, in all the areas of your life, as a husband that you have, as a husband and father, you have the duty to lead out and planning and preparing and organizing and taking action. Even if your skill set is not lended to preparing, planning, organizing, you still must initiate responsibility toward that direction and seek to do that as a husband and father. Even singles, it would be wise to plan, prepare, organize, and at the right time, take action. What has helped me, and this somewhat deals with God's will for your life, are the two books. One book is by John MacArthur, uh, Found God's Will, little book, Found God's Will. You can read that book. Another book is by Kevin D. Young, and it is called... Thank you. Just do something. That is an easy book to read, and he has a good sense of humor, and it will be helpful. But both of them are somewhat small. Get those books, and they will help you to prepare to organize and do in, uh, in light of what is God's will. But I, I think, in, in summary, let me say it like this. God is sovereign, so wash the dishes. God is sovereign, so put oil in your car. If you don't put oil in your car and you don't wash the dishes, there are going to be problems. To myself and all the children and to the adults, clean your room. Clean your house. It's not going to get clean just because God is sovereign. You can pray all you want to. The dishes won't be washed. Oil is not going to go into your car. And your house is not going to get clean. I could be wrong. Most likely, the Lord sovereignly himself will not come to your house to wash the dishes, pour oil in your car, and clean your room. Most likely, that's not going to happen. He may. But most likely, he won't. It's part of God's sovereign plan that you and I pray, prepare, or organize according to our ability, and then we stretch ourselves, we seek to improve in those areas, and then we actually do something. We do something. 
third detail then. A, a third detail. I should say this, and I say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek before we go to the third detail. I had to ask if it was okay if I said this, and the two people I asked, not John and Brett, would not say yes or no. So I'm going to say it anyways. I think it's okay. Because the Lord governs over all things, whether you have a lot or a little, you should get your rear in gear. You should get your rear in gear, you know. Don't be a lazy clod like a mushroom on some kind of log. Jesus wasn't lazy. And he held more close, he held a perfect view of the sovereignty of God. But there wasn't an ounce of laziness in him. I'm not saying be a busybody and a workaholic. Seek to know what God wants you to do it and do it with all your heart. That is, be focused and keep going forward. God isn't sovereign about how much you have or how much you don't have. Keep going forward as you focus on the Lord. The third detail. Develop the big picture. Develop the big picture. And this text that we have here is part of the big picture of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, Joseph is speaking to his brothers when they threw him in the pit and then sold him, human trafficked him to slavers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, don't be afraid. The big picture is in the providence of God, God was using all that happened in Joseph's life to preserve and to keep Israel safe, which ultimately leads to the fact that we have the Messiah, that you get to go to heaven. So all that happened to Joseph secured a place where Jacob and his family could go to Goshen and have food and be protected. And it was from Israel and their survival that from the tribe of Judah, That's the tribe that Jesus Christ came from. If Joseph did not become second in charge in Egypt, he was in a pit that he became the second potentate in Egypt in terms of rank. If that wouldn't have happened in the providence of God, then Israel possibly would not have survived. And Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed, wouldn't have happened. So the big picture is in the providence of God. God has a story. It's a perfect story. And it's a story of salvation. And the the greatest thing that that could ever happen, that is that Jesus will be the Savior and the Lord, and the whole universe will be submitted to him. This is the big picture. That even when people do bad, evil things to you, God ultimately has has that as part of his plan to make you like Christ and to exalt Christ. This is the big picture. So we, we can say this then. We go through tough times you know, all, all the time, right? And we, we said this. You are like on the roller coaster. You're going up the hill. You know. Nice. Thank you, Lord. Then you get to the top and... 
Oh my. <laughs> Last roller coaster I went on was with my brother, and I was. There was no shoulder harnesses. I thought for sure I was coming out. I thought I was going to be a martyr, and the Lord was going to say, Tom, getting martyred on a roller coaster, you know, not the best. It was scary. It was <laughs> That's the way life can be. Tough times. Difficult times. However, when we have this big picture, we know that that's not the end of the story. You know, going up and down and up and down and difficult times and then difficult times and then difficult times. There, there will come a time when Jesus says, Welcome home. Come into paradise that I've prepared for you. This is what the Bible says. You are not now at the end of the story. Again, this is just prologue. Ephesians 2, 7. There will be age and age and age and age of grace and grace and more grace and more love and, and more joy. And it will go on and on and on and on and on forever. Glorious paradise and joy and perfect love. The worst that we have is right now. It only gets better. Second, underneath to develop the big picture. And though I, I just said this, I can say it again, it's really number two, is that we can say it this way. You will have a better ending than being second in charge of a nation, right? Think about Joseph. Would not be so wonderful and so cool and so enormous and so privileged if somebody said to you, you can be the second most powerful person in America. Right? All the gold, all the money, anything that you want to do, basically, you can do. Only one person would be over you. Wouldn't that be incredible? But that's nothing, <laughs> really. Joseph had that for a little bit of time, then he died. But the Bible says that all those that believe in Jesus, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, 226, 321, says that you will reign with Christ. Revelation 226 applies Psalm 2 to the believer, where it says that he will rule with a rod of iron. Revelation 226 applies that to the saint. And Revelation 3 says that Christ will take you and sit you, the believer, those that have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, he'll place you on his throne. What? Reigning with Pharaoh. I'm going to reign with Christ. Forever. That's my ending. That's yours, if you're in Jesus. That's incredible. This is the big picture. This is how we can keep going forward. This is what we can be focused on. I am truly a pilgrim of this world, and forever and forever and forever, I'm going to be with Christ, worshiping Him, and He's going to allow me to reign with Him, not based upon my goodness, but based upon His righteousness and His goodness and His love. It's incredible. Better than ruling with any earthly monarch is ruling with the, the mighty Christ. That's the big picture. That's incredible. That's your destiny. Now, let me 
edit a little bit of the points and go to a final point underneath this third detail is this. Finally, God will use you underneath this third detail that we've talked about developing a big picture. God will use you. You can look at Joseph. Did God use Pharaoh? I'm sorry. Yes, he did. Did God use Joseph? Yes. God used Joseph to help Egypt, to help all the earth, and to help Israel, and even to help us. God, though also, in his word, says he wants to use you. Right? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, verses 10 through 11, say that he's given his saints spiritual gifts. And he calls us to use them. Uh, Ephesians 4.12, doing works of service. God wants to use you. And we can see in this text where Joseph names his children, Manasseh and Ephraim, which basically means forgetfulness and fruitfulness. That's toward the end of the text, verse 50 and following. And it seems that what Joseph is saying is not necessarily that he's gripped by bitterness, but he's able to say, my troubled past, I've put that behind me. I'm committed to forgetting about it. And I'm going to press forward, and God has and will make my life fruitful. Because God is sovereign over all things, I'm going to seek to forget what lies behind me, and I'm going to keep pressing forward to what lies ahead. Forgetfulness and fruitfulness. Being useful to God. I'm going to forget all the troubles of my past. Who doesn't have troubles in their past? We all have troubles in our past. If you need to deal with it, deal with it, your past. But it's covered and cleansed. Have a type of forgetfulness about it and keep pressing forward and fruitfulness and usefulness with the spiritual gifts and services that God has given you. The big picture then would be this, summarizing. Bad things happen, but the Lord is in control and he has a purpose for you. And you're not at the end of your story. Nobody here is at the end of the story. Not yet. It's a fourth detail. And we'll stop with this one. There's a fourth detail. We've said overall, God is in charge of success or lack thereof. So therefore, get focused. I mean, get focused on, on the Lord and keep pressing forward into Christ's likeness. But the fourth detail is this. Press forward because the Lord has you in his hand. Press forward because the Lord has you in his hand. Just look at the life of Joseph. He was in a pit. And he was in a dungeon. Yet we see scattered throughout these chapters that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord had his loving kindness on him. The Lord had his grace upon him. Joseph was in that gracious, loving, kind, providential hand of God. And so because of that, he could keep going forward. He could keep pressing on. Believer, are you in the hand of God? Are you in the hands of Christ? It's not that we go forward by our own strength, but we go forward because truly we are in the hand of God in Christ. 
You can look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10, a great chapter, one of my favorite chapters. And he says this in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one, no one, but snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Great passage about the deity of Christ and how it's God that preserves us and keeps us protected from the evil one. Both the Father, both God the Father and God the Son, protect us. We're in the hand of the triune God. So because of that, we can keep pressing forward. We can look at the life of Joseph. Joseph, all that he went through, though people are responsible for their own sin, nothing happened to Joseph that was outside of God's predetermined, ordained will. One time one person said, and I imagine it's been said many times, I, I forgot where I heard it from, but he said, you are immortal until it's God's time for you to die. So until it's God's time for you to pass away, you're not going to pass away. That doesn't mean you're foolish, but be wise, work hard, press forward, seek to be like Christ, get weary because you're working hard. Don't get weary just with life. Get weary because you're serving and loving and laying down your life for Christ and for others. Don't get weary of doing that. Get weary because you're doing that. Because we don't know when the end of our story comes. We, we don't know when we're going to see Christ face to face. You want to focus on him. Keep pressing forward knowing that we're in the hand of Christ. Nothing's going to happen to you unless it's gone through the, the mind of Christ and his book that he's written for you about your life. Bad things are going to happen. But that's been part of God's story for your life. Nobody can ultimately defeat you and snatch you out of the hand of God the Father and out of Christ's hand. And so we can keep going forward. You can look at Joseph. He kept going forward. I am amazed with that, is that he just keeps plowing onward. And there is a type of humility that he has. Believers, the Lord is in control of whether there are times of bounty or times of barrenness. So focus on the Lord and keep going forward. As we conclude the sermon, we can say that Klaus Schwab is wrong when he says, at least for believers, he's wrong, when he says, you will own nothing and be happy. Is that true for believers? Is that a biblical statement? You will own nothing and be happy? Listen to what the Spirit of God says. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. 
because of Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, you own the whole universe. And you will be happy by faith in, in Him and by His grace forever and forever and forever. Because God controls the amount of abundance. And He's given you rich abundance in Christ and will forever. Lord, we praise you for this text. Lord, may we keep going forward, keeping focused on you, because we know that it is not out of control weather or out of control nations or out of control people, but it is the Lord God that controls our destiny. Lord, you are the weatherman and you are the controller of all things. And you've written the story of the earth. And we have a good grasp of what you have done, you are doing, and you will do. And so we submit ourselves to you and pray that we can walk by faith and keep pressing forward, Lord. Lord, we praise you and we give you thanks, Lord. Amen.